0: All right, we are live. So at a recent World Economic Forum event, a representative from the United Nations boasted about their work with Google to ensure that their information came up first when you uh, searched things on Google. In her words, we own the science. Also, it appears as though the concept of a universal basic income... Is uh, becoming a little bit more mainstream. So, we're going to be talking about that and more in episode 367 of the In the Tank podcast. Right. Hello and welcome to the In the Tank podcast. As always, I am your host Donald Kendall, and joining me today, we've got Justin Haskins, editorial director at the Heartland Institute and co-author of the latest Glenn Beck book, The Great Reset: Joe Biden and the Rise of 21st Century Fascism. Justin, how are you doing today? Good sir.
1: I'm doing well. I'm doing really well. I'm feeling I'm feeling uh, full and energized thanks to my recent oatmeal uh, meal that I had here on the air before we came on that you were making fun of me uh, for. So I'm feeling pretty. I'm feeling great. I feel smarter. I feel uh, uh, wiser. I feel
0: warmer. It's full of oats. I'm full of oats. Yep. So I'm ready to go. Full of oats and hot takes on the topics that we're going to talk about today. Chris Talgo,
2: senior editor here at the Heartland Institute. How are you
0: doing today, good sir?
2: Doing well also. Um, Jim, Jim, likely, and I had a very close battle in fantasy football uh, this past weekend, and I pulled it out by about three points. So um, congrats to me and maybe next time for Jim. (laughs) 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 taking shots (laughs) at jim Lakely,
0: who is once again not here for the show uh he is still in a different part of the country taking care of family matters but uh we think that he will be back for next week so if you're i I
1: like to think of jim as always here kind of like a ghost (laughs) you know that (laughs) haunts the show at all times that's kind of how i like to see it i I haven't seen him a ghost Yeah, not like and a the, creepy ghost, but he's always he's always lurking in the background.
0: You know? Yeah, I haven't seen him in the comments section, but uh, surely if he has a gym rant, he'll send it to us in text form instead of uh, verbally on the show. But he'll likely, like I said, be there next time. Um, and also, just a week from tomorrow. Is this correct, Chris? A week from tomorrow is our benefit dinner? Yep. One Coming week, up very everybody. quick. Very quick. October 21st. Uh, Benefit dinner in the Chicagoland area. Um, We've talked about it pretty much every episode for the past few months. But uh, if you want more information on it, ticket information there, I believe there are still tickets available that uh, you can go to heartland.org. Click on the little featured tab at the top, or you can go to benefit.heartland.org for all of that information. But, uh, you know, we're going to be there, Justin. I'm pretty sure you're going to be there. So I'm really hoping that we've got a few of these uh, people that are always joining us for our show going to uh, attend the event so we can meet in person. That would be uh, pretty cool. Pretty cool. So I'm hoping that's the case. Um, also, before we go, get going on our topics, I always have that message out there, uh, mostly for our audio only listeners that are probably catching the show on a Friday that you can join us on Thursdays at noon central time for the live uh stream of it you can join in the conversation put your comments and questions in there maybe we'll show your comments on the screen maybe we'll address your questions on the fly um and also you can help our show out just by doing a couple of things won't cost you a nickel only it costs you a few seconds which is hitting that like button hitting that share button leaving a comment underneath the video uh or subscribing if you haven't done so all of those things Uh, Like I said, won't take you more than a couple of seconds, but it helps break through those big tech algorithms that prevent content like this from being shown to more people. Um, So usually I start off with a little opening chit chat section, but we got a lot to talk about today. So I just kind of want to get to it. So I want to talk about this clip that's been going around. Um, It comes from a World Economic Forum event that they hosted about disinformation. The clip itself is pretty interesting, but there is so much more to the story that I wanted to dive into it in this episode. Uh, So the World Economic Forum, you know, the the champions of the Great Reset, they occasionally host events called the Sustainable Development Impact Meetings. So at their latest one, just a week ago or so, They had a session called Tackling Disinformation where they discussed, quote, how the public regulators and social media companies can collaborate to increase online safety. Oh, what great people these people are just trying to look out for our our own interests and our own safety when we go on the Internet. (laughs) So the participants of this discussion included Adrian Monk, uh, Managing Director of the World Economic Forum Geneva. Melissa Fleming, the Undersecretary General for Global Communications with the United Nations, Rachel Smolklin, Senior Vice President, Global News, CNN Digital Worldwide, and a few others. A real who's who of those people that really want to control your lives. So first off, the panel uh, talked about the scourge of myths and disinformation as it revolved around COVID. And they complained that social media was rampant with misleading information about COVID. And, you know, we know this. We talked about this uh, week in and week out for a long time. Uh, Whether it was misinformation from Fauci or the UN or CNN, we we cover this on a weekly basis throughout all of the pandemic. Which leads to my first question to you guys. Is history really going to be written in these people's favor? I mean, we've covered the changes in stances as it related to the efficacy of masking, the changing of definitions of terms like vaccine, the 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 false bill of goods. Uh, we were all force fed as it relates to, to lockdowns and everything like that. And, and all of this, uh, you know, from from their point of view, we were the ones that were spreading disinformation. <laughs> so, Chris, I'll give you first whack at this at this whole idea.
2: Well, when it relates to COVID-19, I don't think so because we're a couple of years out from the pandemic and a lot of the uh, statements, the unequivocal statements that they were making, such as this was not, uh, you know, this was not a um, a lab produced uh, virus or the fact that, you know, masks work and the uh, vaccines prevent the spread of uh, the disease. We, we've seen that those things have been co- proven completely false. However, the uh, people who, you know, made those those statements, they have not retracted them and the mainstream media has not retracted it. So I I I doubt that in the next few years that we will, you know, you know, get about faces from these, you know, people on on these issues. And um it, it remains to be seen whether or not, you know, in decades to come, when uh, the history of this era is written, you know, what what narrative will uh emerge. Yeah, it's just crazy, Justin. I mean, like <laughs> I Like
0: I said, we covered all of these things, all these misleading things, all this uh, uh, contradictory stuff that they talked about in, yeah. in terms of all those things I listed off. You know, yet they're over there sitting high and mighty claiming that they're the real arbiters of truth and uh, everything else that runs counter to that is disinformation. I mean, is yeah. that how the history books are going to be written?
1: Well, that's an interesting way of, of framing it. So. I think the way the history books are going to be written is different from the way that this is going to be viewed by people in this particular period of time. Um, so for example, um, if you look back at something like, uh, well, I'll, and I'll, I'll give you an anecdote when I was younger, um, and uh, especially college age and you know, you're going to college, you're learning about climate change all the time. It's, it's, it's everywhere on college campuses. I remember saying to my father, who's a, a staunch, staunch conservative and, uh, and pretty skeptical of these kinds of things, um, said to him, hey, you know, what about all this climate change stuff? Like, what about this? that seems like the science is, is, you know, that there's a lot of people, a lot of scientists, big institutions that say that this is going to be really catastrophic. There's even some people on the right who feel this way you know, I mean, what What do we, maybe we do need to do something about it. Maybe government really does need to get involved and, and start pushing for solutions to this. And he said to me, Justin, listen, I've been through all of this before. I remember when in the 1970s, when everyone was talking about global cooling and how that was going to be a catastrophe. And then it never happened. And okay. I remember the population scare stuff that was really popular in the 1960s and 70s. We're all you know we're not going to be able to feed people by the year 2000. And of course, that those all these things came and went and nothing happened. And I remember Y2K and I remember everybody saying Y2K was like a huge thing and that the entire global internet would shut down and we would have a crisis on our hand from all of the effects of that. and that didn't happen. And he said, look, I'm all, I'm skeptical that the same kind, the same people making all of these claims are now making this new claim and it's just as catastrophic and beneficial for them. So, uh, you know, I don't necessarily trust it, right?
0: Mm-hmm. But if
1: you were to look at the history book right. of that era, would I find a section in the history books about the 1960s and 70s that talked about how there was a giant global cooling scare? Or the population boom that, you know, was going to lead to the destruction of mankind on Earth because we couldn't feed everybody and mass starvation. Would I find that section in a history book? Chris is Chris is a former history teacher, so he could probably answer this question. My guess, Chris,
2: is no. I can vouch that that got swept under the rug uh, in right. history, in U.S. Yeah. history classes when that, I was teaching.
0: Right. They have a whole chapter dedicated to Paul Ehrlich and just how he was wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean I mean that that they leave that part out. So my point is this. I think lots of people who don't buy into the existential threat argument of global warming there's a reason why older people are far more likely to be skeptical of that than younger sure. people. It's because they remember all of the other existential threats that never happened, right? Right, right. It's not because the they're misled, it's because
2: they have a memory.
1: It's because they have a memory. <laughs>
2: remember so the, the ozone history... layer in the 1980s, too?
1: Right. So the history books don't always reflect what people remember themselves. Sure. So I think the way this is probably, and I'm and I'm I'm not happy about this. I think this is really bad but I think the way that this will be remembered in the distant future is probably that, you know, they saved the world from an even worse catastrophe than otherwise would have happened if we didn't have all these lockdowns. In the same way that if you read a history book today and you look back at the Great Depression era and um, and that, that whole time period, 1930s and 40s, you would think that Franklin Roosevelt's Great Depression programs solved the problem and that all of the things that he did back then fixed the issue when in reality it didn't it was world war ii that really bailed him out um and so i I think that there is going to be a disconnect eventually because our side doesn't write the history books sure but in uh, the short term i think this is going to be very bad for them because i think most people even people who are who are maybe lean to the left realize It was a huge overreaction. Actually, none of the things that they said was going to happen happened the way they promised. And so in the short term, it's bad for them. In the long term, they'll find a way to make it good
0: for them. Uh, So, Justin, I got a related question for you, because uh, so the the lady from the U.N., uh, Melissa Fleming, kind of used all this COVID talk to to bring up the so-called infodemic. Another another term that they're trying to coin over there where people are trying to search for information about covid and they're being exposed to all this contradictory information. They're getting confused by all these differing viewpoints that are up there. Oh, what are we supposed to do? So and and another panelist, Claire uh, Wardell from Brown University, said we can't put everything back into the box that fundamentally our information environment will always be polluted in different ways. So uh, I've, I've been exposed to a lot of this jargon and, and way of phrasing stuff from the World Economic Forum. So the way that I took this is that, uh, you know, if if only we had total control over the Internet and social media from the beginning, then we would have ensured that these issues never got out of the box in the first place. So then uh, and this is the part that I kind of want to bring to your attention, Justin. The moderator brings the CNN person into the discussion saying, Rachel, You have a huge portfolio at CNN, but you know you're in a position where CNN is both an organization that's trying to make sense of the world and trying to establish the facts. It's also part of a political war on who owns the narrative. So, I mean, this just reminded me of... uh, what was it uh, like Mika Brzezinski or something on uh, MSNBC where she was complaining about how Trump was trying to control like what people thought about news stories. And then she like accidentally said, that's our job. That That's the media's <laughs> job to do that. Right. So Justin, what do you think about this idea of trying to own the narrative?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that there is no doubt whatsoever that on within the the world economic forum you know orbit and i guess you could say amongst the ruling class in europe canada and america there is this very strong sense that has developed over the past um uh, you know couple of decades it's always been there to some degree but over the past decades we've seen it getting increasingly stronger and in the past really since trump won the election it's been especially true where they had at least some semblance of Well, people, if we tell people what the right ideas are, they will believe us and then they'll do the right things like within their framework. So right. Things means whatever they think people should do. Okay. Uh But then Trump happened and it was like, Oh, well we told them that Trump was a monster and they picked the monster anyway. (laughs) So now we have to, we have to, control the narrative even more tightly because people are getting confused by the misinformation and the disinformation and the the russian you know collusion and all the other sort of like boogeymen that they con- conco- uh, concocted in order to explain why Hillary Clinton lost the election rather than just saying, you know, she's a super unlikable person that nobody wanted. And she refused to go to Wisconsin and places like that to campaign. <laughs> I mean, that's the obvious, right? But they didn't want to. They didn't want to do that. So instead it was this elaborate problem that we have to fix by controlling what people see because we can't trust. And this is something I've said this over and over and over again to so many people, to so many people, I'll never forget it. As long as I live, I went to a cocktail type party with uh elitist type people.
0: Oh my and God. You I Coke know... brothers shoving money in your no, pockets. No, 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 were These
1: were, these were <laughs> left wing. These were not oh. fans of the Coke brothers and okay. I'll never forget it. we're talking about people being able to make their own decisions, their own choices in life and being able, and that, that being the best path forward. And the answer that I got from one of these people at this event, very highly educated person was, most people are too stupid to know what to do. They don't know what to do. And so we have to, we have to give them the answers to these problems. And then they were referred to as not making this up as sheep who need to be led (laughs) to the, in the right direction. And so forever I've, I have said this to many people in elite people, whether they're on the left or even consider themselves to be on the right the average person is a stupid sheep that needs it's to be so led. funny
0: because you know because when you were originally going to say it I was like oh that's a very like paternalistic concept it's like you know I know what's best for my kids so I'm going to take care of them but it's like when they're when they're referencing it as sheep that's even worse <laughs> that's it's it. much uh, worse Chris Chris I want to go to you next because I know that you were doing some writing on this whole topic of the whole we own the science and everything but Uh, So Melissa Fleming from the UN goes on to talk about the things that they're doing to ensure that the right message gets out there to ensure that, uh, you know, we own the narrative, I guess, to use their own words. So she says, and I'm quoting her directly here, we deployed our uh, country offices all over the world to take the basic messaging that really didn't change that much on health guidance and on the efficacy and the safety of vaccines. And produce content in such a way that is locally relevant and that it travels in digital spaces, but also in languages that people understand it in context that makes sense. Then she says another really key strategy that uh, we had was to deploy influencers, influencers who were really keen, who have huge followings, but really keen to help carry messages that were going to serve their communities. And, uh, and they were much more trusted than the United Nations telling them something from their New York City headquarters. And finally, we had another trusted messenger product, uh, which was called Team Halo, where we trained scientists around the world and some doctors on TikTok. And we had TikTok working with us. And these scientists who had virtually no following to start with got verified ticks. So, uh, so, so, Chris, just kind of give me your take on all of this, from the setting up of the offices around the country to make sure that they get their propaganda, I mean, messages out there on the local level, and bringing in TikTok influencers to, to spread these messages that people weren't receiving well from the UN, from these stodgy old UN suits. But if we got these cool TikTok influencers doing it, then maybe people will be talking to our propaganda, I mean, messaging. What do you think about all this?
2: Uh, It it tells me, first and foremost, that their primary audience is young people because young people (laughs) are most inclined to use TikTok. Uh, And we should also remember that TikTok is a Chinese owned company and all the data that is, uh, you know, uh, accumulated uh, on TikTok goes straight to the Chinese Communist Party for their nefarious purposes. So I find it strange that she would be celebrating uh, TikTok. Right. I mean, TikTok is a tool of the Chinese Communist Party to control their population and to gather as much data on, uh, on you know, naive Americans as possible. But, uh, Donnie, this, you know, this just goes to show that they will use any means necessary to try to control the narrative and to try to uh, keep people from accessing uh, information that, you know, could run counter to their narrative. So I, I, I just I completely agree with how Justin framed this as. They want to control the uh, thoughts of the population, and the easiest way to do that is to control the dissemination of information and to control the language. So when they, you know, kick Donald Trump off of uh, Facebook and Twitter, they they, you know, prevent him from reaching millions of people, and you know, they prevent his message from resonating, you know, with you know, millions of people they want to have one message and they want to their uh, have their message be the you know monopolistic message and you know i think that they are very frustrated that there are still entities such as fox news or the internet as it's currently constructed that prevents them from having that monopolistic control and that's why they are so adamantly trying to work with these social media platforms and these big tech companies to ensure that their uh, message is the only message that people receive
0: Yeah, I just want to I want to just kind of talk a little bit more about the idea of an influencer, right? Because this this is like kind of a a term that's relatively new. I'm not sure if if everyone that's listening to this is like fully aware of of what like an influencer is because it it is kind of like a broadly defined concept. I mean, you could argue that uh, I won't say me. I'll say Justin is an influencer (laughs) because he's got like, you know, however many followers on on, uh, you know, social media and all of that. He's on well, the show how, about, all I mean, the how time. about someone
2: like Kim Kardashian? She's a huge influencer because she has millions and millions and of millions course. of followers. Uh,
0: uh, of course. And, and anybody that's got any, like, fame or anything like that could be considered an influencer, left and right. You could say Steven Crowder is an influencer. But there is, like, a professional uh, line of influencers who their job is to just have an outsized... Uh, presence on these social media things. And they'll do this just by putting out like funny videos or something like that or whatever the trending thing of the week is or, or whatever. But then they'll also be paid by different companies uh to, to advertise for them. So when you're going through these people's feeds and you see these little funny stories, every fifth one will be them talking about some new makeup product or something like that, or or some new gadget or whatever that's uh, that like you know they're sponsored by. Like that's a that that's the professional like influencer thing that like this UN people seem to be going after. So now you might have these influencers that are doing these funny little stupid TikTok dances, and then you scroll up one or two. And then it's just like, here's the real information about COVID well, <laughs> because well, they're being bought and paid for by these UN people. Well, this but, is the world we're going towards. But I
2: I, re- I remember when uh, the, the vaccine uh, first came out and uh, the Biden administration had TikTok influencers in the White House trying to, um, you know, get people to take the vaccine. So I think that they're smart enough to understand that young people in particular are much more inclined to listen to an influencer because they Feel that they have a personal relationship with that influencer Correct. because they follow them and they know them so well, even though they don't know them at all whatsoever. Yeah, then having someone at CNN or MSNBC or NBC News or someone in the government say, Take this, so right. they're using them as a vehicle to get their message to the people that they want, and it just so happens that those people are potentially, uh, you know, uh, susceptible to whatever the influencer tells them to do.
0: Right. Yeah. There was a quote in one of the articles that Chris, you were showing me and it was in reference to another world economic forum event from like a couple of years ago, maybe one year ago. And I forget who was quoted saying this, but they're like, yeah, in the, our in our modern world uh, you know, the elites uh, from whatever countries uh, are having more trust with, with each other, you know, like the elites mm-hmm. of France trust the elites of the United States more than ever or something like that. But uh, conversely, uh, the citizenry has like less trust in the elites than ever before. So <laughs> they're they're saying this like there was this bad thing where I'm like say, looking at that quote and be like, oh, yeah, that's a fantastic thing. So what they're trying to do is, well, what they're doing is realizing that, yeah, no one trusts these elites. So they have to mask their uh, messaging mm-hmm. through these influencers that people do like. So it it comes off to me as like, you know, and and I'm taking a very cynical outlook on this. It's just such like an insidious way of kind of trying to get your messaging across. But that's a whole other thing. Uh, Justin, I want to I want to come to you next. So this uh, Fleming then sets her sights on social media companies. She says, finally, finally, and none of us have even mentioned this yet. We really think the platforms bear a huge accountability, responsibility, much more than uh, than they're doing. They did set up, they did provide, you know, ad credits. They did take down quite a bit, but the phenomenon was still exploding on their platforms and still is talking about disinformation. And I'm talking about COVID. I mean, Rachel talked about uh, conflict. There's the Ukraine war. We're seeing a phenomenon of hate speech that is making wars worse. That is actually fueling conflicts. And uh, and these are all phenomenons that always existed. It's just now they are being the distributing possibility, blah, 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 more powerful than ever in this in this day and age. So, Justin, thoughts on this? Because according to Fleming, social media like YouTube and Twitter and Facebook are helping crush disinformation, but perhaps they're not doing enough. (laughs) What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, this strain of thinking has actually been uh, out there for a long time. Um, most people don't realize it, but there are many, many people, uh, on the left who argue that social media companies have, have actually caused a lot of these problems that maybe we should, uh, break them up or punish them in some way because they aren't doing enough to crush what they consider to be disinformation. One of the the stories that I like to tell when we do great reset stuff to show the influence of, of, of ESG scores and, and things like that is that ESG environmental social governance scores. It's a social credit scoring system for companies, essentially. Um, It's the way that the great reset elites Davos elites try to control and manipulate society. Okay. It's their control knob for society, so to speak. Well um, there's this, a very large, very influential ESG database. That's, there's many of them, but one of them in particular did an ESG report on Facebook and, um, the, in the ESG report on Facebook, they gave Facebook. Now you would think Facebook—they're in on all of this stuff. They're—they're uh, they're always working with elites to to try to squash misinformation. All you would think that they'd be getting really high ESG scores, really high social credit scores, right? Right. right. But they actually got a very mediocre score. It, w- it was really not very good at all. And when you read the report as to why they got such a mediocre score, it says very plainly. That one of the reasons they did not do as well as they should is because they were not moderating content, they were not uh, stopping disinformation at a higher rate. And then it cited a study about this very thing. And if you go to the study and you read the study, the one study that was cited in the report, if I remember right, you go to that, you go to the study and you read it. The specific example that they gave was that Facebook wasn't doing enough to silence Donald Trump and all of his misinformation. <laughs> and this was with, this was within, I think a year of when they actually threw him off. I want to say this was 2020. So, so in 2020,
0: is that, so their ESG score is going to go up if they threw him off the platform. Exactly. That like, that's, I mean,
1: literal, that's, that's literally, that's so literally what this was suggested. would their ESG
2: score go to hundred if they assassinated him? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, that, oh, oh, that, careful. that's
1: the, that's the thing though, right? It's, The whole point of the ESG, the the whole point of this is to say, well, you got to make sure that you're you're doing the right things if you're not doing the right things, which means limiting free speech, even from the president of the United States. Then you're not really with us, and that's the World Economic Forum. So way. Doesn't
0: doesn't it kind of show you just like the insatiable quality of these people on this side of this issue, where it's like we just want them to like just let people talk. It's an open platform. You just allow people to talk. It's a very easy standard to to match up to, and whereas like we're mad at them for like taking down all of this speech and you know limiting conservative speech and whatever that they're doing. And it's just like, is that making these overlords happy? These elites happy? No, they're they're still chastising them and, and calling on them to do even more. So yeah. then what is Facebook going to do? You know, especially after a report like that, their ESG scores uh, suffering because of that. We're going to do more. And is that yeah. going to, uh, you know, quell the, the, the tastes of, of these elites that are demanding more? Of course not. They're just going to demand even more on top of that. So it's like this this slope that, you know, is maybe not uh, maybe not a slippery slope, but it sure feels pretty slippery towards one direction. Yeah. The
1: the thing that's amazing you said insatiable desire to try to continue moving this forward. What's really interesting about that idea is this is again, this is another really important aspect to the whole great reset thing. Is that in America, really everywhere in the West, but in America in particular, because we have really strong free speech protections embedded in our constitution and imposed on states. And so it's it's hard, it's really hard here to stifle free speech compared to other places from the government. The the thing that is um has always existed in, in the West uh for the past say five decades is is that, yes, you have uh, the elites have always wanted to stifle people who are, you know, the little people getting in the way of things. And it would always be better if we could just shut them up. And it would always be better if we could just get more of the news outlets and more of of the influencers saying the things we want to say to try to, com- you know, combat this other kind of speech. But right. they they've they've always known that there's a limit to that. And that limit that they run into is, well, but we can't repeal the first amendment like people would never allow that so we we have to live with the first amendment so the the desire to do these kinds of things has always been limited no matter how crazy authoritarian the person might be they know that realistically there's no chance to go beyond that guardrail but what makes this stuff so powerful is that now that's gone Because the social media company isn't beholden to the limits of the First Amendment. So that insatiable desire can go further and further and further and further and further. There really is no end to it. Because because there'll always be some group of people somewhere saying something that people in in the ruling class don't like. And that they think the world would be better off if those people were just shut down. That will always exist. And as long as they have a mechanism for stopping that speech from being influential, which is what social media and other platforms like that, websites and stuff allow, as long as they have that mechanism, they are going to continue to go back to that and constantly push for these companies to get in the line and that's never going to stop. They'll keep doing it forever. They'll never be satisfied by it.
0: it, It's interesting. You bring up the the first amendment and Chris, I'm going to go to you
2: uh, with this because they have a big, they have a big, go ahead. Can I just real quick comment on, uh, You know, what what Justin was saying, I I think that that's a reflection of how fragile their narrative is and how worried and concerned they are of their narrative being blown up by facts. Because I've dealt with this on a micro level, you know, like like having a a conversation with a liberal about something and you, you know, you disagree with them and then you start like, you know... uh, producing a logical, rational argument, you know, in your favor. And then they just like, they go berserk, shut up, yeah. stop. I don't want to hear this. <laughs> yeah. And I think that on, on the, you know, like on a macro level, what the internet and what uh, social media has allowed people to do is to ha- allow one person to literally, uh, you know, reach millions, if not billions of people like that. And that has never existed before in, you know, in human history. So they are so worried that, you know, people are going to, come up with, uh, you know, ideas and arguments that are opposed to what they're trying to force down people's throats and into people's minds, that they are just in all out mode of we must stop this. It's, you know, Johnny, and this is, this is, uh, you know, symbolic of almost all totalitarian regimes, but in past totalitarian regimes like Nazi Germany and uh, and Soviet Union, they could just throw you in a gulag. You know, they they can't really do that now. They can, like the January six people, but it's much easier. <laughs> but it's much easier to just prevent you from spreading the message in the first place. Sure. And I think that that is why they are so hyper aware that on these social media platforms, which you know are are you know revolutionary in terms of the uh, the amount of uh, people that you can reach. And and that's why they are so adamant that we must control it. And look at look at uh, Iran's reaction when people started using social media, you know, during the 2011. Uh, I think it was called the Green Revolution. What did the what is the first thing they did? Shut down, you know, the internet, and social media. Cuba, same thing. As soon as Hong people started Kong to rise up, Hong Kong, same thing. Exactly. So I think that we're getting like a uh, a lesser version of it here in the United States, but it's still a humongous threat because if you don't have free speech, you don't have freedom.
0: Yeah. So they had a conversation about about free speech. Now, this is an international uh, panel, right? They're representing different countries and all of this. So when they were talking about the First Amendment, they were talking about it in specific context of the United States, because the United States is the only country that has the freedom of speech codified in their yeah. you know, ruling documents and all of that. So they just mangle the concept of the First Amendment in this uh, in this panel discussion. So the lady from uh, Claire Wardall, the lady from uh, Brown University or whatever the, the school is, she says, I have to say there are many things about the First Amendment that are very, very special. But I do feel that but word negates everything that came before it. Right. But I do Hmm. feel that it stops nuanced conversations about speech. So my frustration is I wish we could talk more about the harm when it comes to speech. So people say, well, misinformation, uh, it's really legal speech. You know, we know terrorist content, child sexual abuse imagery. We know what to do about that. That's illegal speech. I don't think. Uh, Just as a side note, I don't think child sexual abuse imagery is free is is speech at all. But that's a whole nother thing. But again, it's just in the context of her mangling what all of this is. But lots of these examples, Claire. uh, Well, that's legal speech. And I keep saying, well, it might be legal, but if it's leading to harm, can't we actually have a conversation about that? So my fear when it comes to, to your point, Adrian, is that people say, oh, First Amendment, uh, what kind of harm is that causing? Well, what does uh, this kind of low level conspiratorial, hateful, misogynistic content that doesn't break pl- uh, platform guidelines over time, uh, where is that leading us? <laughs> so I just wish we could have a more nuanced conversation about free speech because I worry that this idea of more speech is is good speech. That's not really the case. (laughs) So Chris, (laughs) I know that you're a big first amendment guy. I think everyone under the heartland umbrella is a big first amendment person, but what do you think of when you hear her talk about free speech like this?
2: All right. So I wrote a Article about this yesterday for Red State. And the first thing that came to mind when I read that sentence was the classic line from Animal Farm that says, Some like all, all animals are equal, but some am, animals are more equal than others. Right. It's an oxymoron. It, it it makes no sense. She is not uh preaching for free speech, she is preaching for speech which she deems uh you know okay or or quote non-harmful. But then that makes me wonder who's going to be the definer of what's harmful and what's not harmful speech. And the entire notion of free speech is that you can say things that are harmful to people. You know, I mean, that, that is the embodiment of free speech. It's just, I I, I
0: don't know how you can listen to that, that whole part and not think of it as an attack against the first amendment. Mm -hmm. I really don't. Yeah,
1: that's, that's clear. That's clearly what it is. And I think that I think that most of those people don't really believe in the First Amendment anyway. They they would they don't want the First Amendment. I mean, what they want is for people to have f- some free speech, but they want a limit on the free speech, as she said, so that we don't allow speech that's really harmful to become, you know, to, to cause misinformation and, you know, people are doing things that they shouldn't be doing as a result of it and whatever. And of course, the opponent to that would say well who decides that how do you make that decision uh everyone is you you you'll, you could say almost anything and some person somewhere will find that harmful so how do we determine that and of course at the end of the day whenever you get into these slippery slope type arguments really what it comes down to is well we think that these this other you know the world economic forum types believe the elites can figure that out and they can put it and they can put a reasonable limit on it. And they're not mm. going to just stifle all free speech. Of course, obviously they would never right. do that. And so they'll, you don't have to worry. You just, they'll put, they'll put a limit on it. And, yeah. And that'll, and, you know, and that's how we do it. And we do it based on bringing in all the stakeholders and all the different groups and corporations (laughs) and activist groups. And we all get together in in Davos and, you know, a few thousand people uh, then get to uh, present things. And then a few hundred people then get into the inner sanctum meeting. And then a few dozen people actually sit down and start writing the rules for what that looks like and then yeah. before you know it you have some report that says well saying questioning anything about xyz thing is too harmful to allow and right. and they'll say this is the will of the people or whatever but that's the whole point it's not yeah. and then the other and just the la- last thing on that the other thing that drives me crazy about this is it doesn't even matter if every single per- like there are many examples in in history that we now look back on and say most people living in a society. I mean, Donnie and I knows that knows knows this well, because I talk about this all the time. When I talk about democratic socialism, there are many times in history where you can go back and say, most people in a society wanted to, to be authoritarian on some minority group in that society. Sure. And Using democratic means, they were willing to democratically limit the rights of other people based on all sorts of absurd things. So like the best, most obvious example of that in America is in the South, right, uh, 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 post-Civil War. There were democratic institutions, voters got together and elected and put people into place and passed all these democratic laws that severely restricted the rights of certain people based on the color of their skin. That's what happened, right? Right. So just because most people, we all recognize today that was terrible, but just because most people in a democratic society thought that that was a good idea does not mean that it is a good idea. And so this idea that you can put these safe limits into place so that we can have a free society where we have some free speech, but then through these institutions, we decide what the limits are, is really just another way of saying you don't actually have any freedom at all. Right. And and that's what any African-American person living in. 1897 in Alabama would say, if you said, Do you think democracy equals freedom? Sure. They would say, Well, I live in a democracy and I don't think that there's freedom. So <laughs> right. that's 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 the point. So they don't care really. That's why we have these absolute protections. Right. That's the whole point of the Bill of Rights. Yeah. And elites don't like that because it it makes it harder for them to do the things that they want to do.
0: Right, right. So all right. We've been talking around this clip for about 42 minutes. So I just want to go ahead and play this. Uh, so get it get it ready, Andy. So this is a clip. This is Melissa Fleming. This is the, the lady from, uh, representing the United Nations. And she's concerned that the information, just like with COVID, uh, that if you were look up climate change, if you Google climate change, uh, that like, you know, you're going to get conflicting messages. So she explains how they're teaming up with Google. So let's go ahead and play this clip. You know, we partnered with Google, for example. If you Google climate change, you will, at the top of your search, you will get all kinds of
1: UN resources. We started this partnership when we were shocked to see that when we would Googled climate change, we Hardware were getting incredibly up. distorted uh, <laughs> information right at the top. So we, we're becoming much more proactive. Um, oh. You know, we own the science and we think that the world you know, should know it. And, and the platforms themselves also do. Um, but again, it's, it's, it is, um, it's, it's a huge, huge challenge that I think all sectors of society need to be very active in.
0: Yeah, we own the science. We own So I think that this whole discussion that we've been having so far this episode just highlights how much sway these organizations have when it comes to the information that you receive. They openly talk about owning the narrative. They openly talk about owning the science. They openly talk about working with social media giants to tilt the scales in the direction of their narrative. They openly talk about partnering with Google to ensure that their narrative is featured at the top of the Internet search results when you look up certain things like COVID or climate change or you name it. So this whole panel is not about creating some vetting process to ensure that people aren't being exposed to disinformation. No, that's not what it is. It's more about what can we do to ensure that our narrative is visible to the public and anything counter to that is invisible. And we'll use big tech, big business, and the government to ensure that that's the case. That's what this entire thing was about. And they're just trying to mask it with this idea we're trying to protect your online presence and, and make sure that only only the right information is seen so uh i do we do want to get to a second topic but chris i'll give you final final thoughts on on just everything that we've talked about so far
2: yeah i mean i thought that statement was pretty terrifying and i think it, it uh goes uh it, it's aligned with what jen saki said uh when uh, she said that the white house was working with google and facebook and other uh big tech companies to uh, censor uh, people's, you know, postings about uh, COVID-19 and how they were, you know, colluding with Google and Facebook to uh, ensure that people got the message that they wanted them to get about the vaccines and COVID-19 in general. So this is just, I think this is just another step of that process. And the United Nations is a very, very powerful international organization. And if they are uh, colluding with Google to suppress uh, climate change content that they deem you know not worthy of people's uh, ability to read that's a just i mean th- that is a very very scary uh, step because what next i mean what 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 are you not allowed to question next what else are they going to say we own the science on and, right. and 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 it you never own the science science is a is a constant uh, process you know where the scientific method is trying to prove that uh, that you know the scientific uh, uh, issue at hand is is truth Right. And as as we've known, pe- people have thought of things were scientific truths for centuries. And then all it takes is one person to disprove it. So there's no such thing as owning the science. Also, yeah, I, think it, she,
1: it, I think she was paraphrasing a quote from the, pope back in uh, galileo's trial or something like that from the 1600s we own the science i think well, that's see, where she got that well see
0: uh, when i was confused because when i hear the science i just think anthony fauci so when they were saying that we yeah, own the science i was like oh shoot they have them chained up in the basement or something? yeah
1: that's a that's actually a good point if anthony fauci is science and the united nations owns the science then Technically speaking, the United Nations owns Anthony Fauci, which There's right. yeah. a lot of problems with that statement. There really are.
0: Uh, yeah. So I we could we could spend the next 45 minutes, another 45 minutes talking about all of this. And just like, you know, even just from like a, a uh, like a non nefarious perspective, like the idea that like a, like a, a blades like sharpen each other or whatever that like saying is like we've talked about how, you know, when when you completely blunt out the side of the, the issue that's talking about like the shortcomings of renewable energy and all of that. And you completely just like disregard them, ignore them. Don't let them be a a part of the conversation. Then when you uh, put yourself in a system where you have to rely on, on renewable energy, wind and solar, and then it completely collapses, people are left wondering, well, what the heck? Like, why, why wasn't anybody warning about this? And it's because you shut all those people out. So like the same thing happens with all of these things. That's why free speech is such a, a powerful thing because it's a competition of ideas. That's the whole point of it. So when you get rid of that that, that whole side of it, you eliminate the, com- uh, the, the competition, everyone suffers. So, but again, I want to get to our secondary topic here. So let's get to it, but I'm curious about your thoughts. So in the, underneath this video, let me know what you think about that conference. And uh, you know, if there's anything that you think we, missed. So anyways, let's talk about universal basic income. So do you remember UBI's? Does anyone remember this? Perhaps you've seen a story or two about it. Uh, Maybe you had a nephew or a niece talking about uh, this wacky idea during some family gathering or something like that. Or perhaps you remember in the 2020 primaries when Andrew Yang talked about this need for a universal basic income is basically was the only politician that i've ever heard talking about this on a on a large stage well in our neck of the woods the uh, suburbs of of chicago the chicagoland area the idea of a ubi has grabbed some headlines because cook county the county that contains chicago is launching the largest guaranteed income pilot ever in america So Cook County Promise is the name of this program that is going to give three thousand two hundred and fifty households five hundred dollars per month for two years as part of their universal basic income pilot program. So I've seen a number of these stories over the past few years about uh, UBI pilot projects. I recall one uh, happening in Los Angeles. There was a couple others in a few other California cities I remember one popping up a headline that that had to do with uh, the Denver area, and now there's this one in Chicago, right? So I was like, oh, yeah, there's there's a little bit of a trend going on with these uh, different municipalities or cities, uh, you know, trying out these little pilot programs as it relates to a UBI. So I wanted to look into it and see, like, how many of these... Have there been how many of these pilot programs have there been? Because I've only ever heard about this in the last couple of years. And like I said, like I I recall a couple of stories about this. So before I started looking, I would have guessed 12, maybe 15 of these pilot programs. I was way off. Uh, (laughs) So I found this. I found this link and it's from the great the great researchers at Mashable. But it was the only uh, extensive list I can find of all these pilot programs. And no, there's more than 12. There's more than 15 um 50 there has been 50 of these programs piloted across the country over just the past couple of years because like i said this is a fairly new thing so all of this is just in the past couple of years so andy uh, anyone that's watching this uh, andy's controlling the screen there so you just slowly scroll down you can see just the list of all of the the different pilot programs um there's and, and a lot of them are in california But they are pretty widespread. The first one that's mentioned here is in Birmingham, Alabama, the Embrace Mothers Project, which was going to give 110 mothers $375 per month for a year uh one in phoenix arizona like i said a whole bunch in in california just uh, you know all over the place and and the size and scope and how much money is doled out for how long all of those are different amongst all of these different 50 programs that that are happening across the country some of them are are geared towards like younger people some of them are geared towards older people some are geared towards uh, expecting mothers. Some are geared to expecting mothers uh, that are people of color. Uh, you know, they're all over the place, all these different things. Some of them, which was a surprise to me, uh, specifically were giving out money to ex convicts, which I thought was an interesting use of taxpayer money for a pilot program like this. So, Gainesville, Florida, the Just Income GNV program. Was going to give a thousand dollars plus six hundred dollars a month for eleven months to one hundred and fifteen recently released convicts. That was a uh, another one of these pilot programs that was tried out in Durham, North Carolina, which Justin hails from, I think. uh, Their Excel program was going to give one hundred and nine formerly incarcerated individuals six hundred dollars per month for a year. Oh, Justin, is that where you got that extra six hundred bucks? I was wondering about that. I'm not telling you anything. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, but the, all of this is to say that this isn't just a couple here and there. This is seem, seemingly, especially when you look at this in totality, a, a a thing that seemingly has more momentum than I would have guessed uh, at the beginning of me looking into this for this episode. So, Chris, I, I just kind of want your uh, initial takes on just, I guess, UBI, just kind of in general and uh, whether or not you think that this is becoming a little bit more into the to the mainstream, or maybe we'll see more established politicians actually pushing for this instead of just Andrew Yang.
2: Well, I think Andrew Yang was the first to do it at the uh, presidential uh, debate level. But I, I know a whole bunch of uh, Democrats, AOC, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, Bernie Sanders, who have been talking about a UBI for a very long time. And uh, during the uh, uh, pandemic, when the government, you know, gave out those stimulus checks many of them were saying that this should become a monthly mm, uh, like a, I remember a, that know, a, a monthly thing so it doesn't surprise me that this is you know happening more and more across the country because I think this is in line with what the uh, Democratic Party wants to create and that is a a subclass of people that are dependent upon government and I think that this would also allow them to implement their uh d- digital currency system and it would also allow them to much easier uh, to implement their ESG uh, social credit system because if you are a good social credit scorer, then you might get some extra, you know, UBI funds. And if you're a naughty, you have a low social credit score. Well, then maybe you're going to be, you know, uh, getting less UBI from uh, Uncle Sam in the future. Um, But Donnie, I I think this is also, you know, just really um, uh, bad for the future because it's incentivizing uh, laziness and it's incentivizing people not to work. And, uh, you know, we're already dealing with a lot of phenomenon that are, that is uh, occurring right now to, uh, people's, uh, you know, job prospects, whether it's automation or, you know, lack of education. So this, I think, is just another, um, layer to the, uh, to the many, many, uh, societal, um, uh, things that are happening right now that are causing people to become less, uh, Uh, able or less capable of working
0: yeah yeah i i I do want to get back to that uh social credit idea and the digital dollar thing because i was going to bring that up too but uh justin just from like a just like a straight policy perspective just white paper you know policy brief kind of perspective like do you have any insight into what the pilot program's like objective is at all because it's like yeah it's almost like framed as like oh this is an experiment And that, but that begs the question to me, it's like, well, then how do you judge whether or not that experiment was a success or a failure? And I I haven't seen anything and maybe I'm just, haven't been looking in the right spots, but I haven't seen anything that offers any insight into like, whether or not after Cook County does this for like a year and a half, if they're like, oh yeah, that was a success or no, that was a complete failure.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I think, I mean, I think it varies, uh, significantly based on the program, some of them are going to be more focused on, uh, something like how, uh, are we helping people transition? So like, for example, some of these have to do with people who were formerly incarcerated, right? They're convicts. And I think that, um, one of the things that you see all the time with programs that are trying to help people who were previously incarcerated transition back into normal life is how do we give them some, you know, uh, money or w- there's been welfare programs that have that have operated in that way uh, food stamps or whatever to help them uh, get through that transition period right so I think some people look at this and say well this is really just a way of a more efficient uh, mm-hmm. way of of covering that gap and helping people transition into this next phase of life in other cases it's got more to do with the quality of life right so, are, are uh, you know, mothers with children, single mothers with children, are they, is the quality of life for those children better now with this program than it was before? In other cases, it's, it's um, you know, so it, it's, it's got, it's, it, there's all kinds of objectives that you could look at it. It's actually very, very similar from a policy perspective to a lot of welfare program objectives. and And I mean, welfare, um, depending on what kind of program you're talking about. But there are a lot of welfare programs where, especially prior to welfare reform in the 1990s with the Republican Congress and Bill Clinton, um, you had people basically just getting money. I mean, and and you had to qualify for it, but you were basically just getting money. And that was, it was, a, it was literally just a handout. And then they reformed it and a lot of people dumped, dropped off of the welfare rolls after they did that. So really, this is kind of like those programs. And I imagine that the stated goals of them are the same. It's all about alleviating poverty and helping people transition and all of that. And from people on our side of this, of course, we're looking at this and saying, uh, well, it seems to me like you're making people completely dependent on government, number one. Number two, it seems like you're giving them less incentive to go out and find an actual job number two. And number three, I think the biggest thing is what is the long-term goal for all of this? Like really, why are you all so interested in doing it this way? And why aren't you just reforming your welfare programs? If that's really all this is meant to do is just help moms who are poor or help prisoners who just got out of prison. I'm not necessarily opposed to some kind of a transition type program to help these people in tough situations. So what? but why not just do that under welfare reform? Why are you yeah, doing well, UBI it, programs? And that's where you start to get into some of the, I think there's more to this than...
0: Well I I've, I've heard of this this conversation and this like kind of grand compromise concept where you know you talk about these welfare programs and there's there's like a million different ones and they all have these redundancies and overlapping and they all have a million people working for all of these different bureaucratic institutions or whatever that all make up the social safety net and it's like this big giant complicated mess of government let's wipe that away and replace it with a nice clean UBI like I've heard of this this talk like we I've seen these conversations talking about this almost in like a grand compromise type of way but like my fear like even if that was feasible which i i'm not sure that it is like my fear is that all of that bureaucracy and everything is just going to be built on top of it and it's like all right we've got this underlying uh social safety net everyone gets this ubi or whatever but why is joe getting x amount of money but sarah who's pregnant is getting that same amount of money shouldn't she get more you know because she's pregnant or whatever right uh, Steve is disabled. Shouldn't he get more? So I almost feel like, all right, we wipe it all away. We replace it with this nice, clean social safety net or however you want to uh, describe it. But then all of that bureaucracy that we wiped away just gets built on top of that. And the, what we end up is uh, with is like a mess just as bad as it was beforehand. But to Chris's point, when he was talking about that social credit stuff and the uh, digital dollar stuff, that is actually my new concern, especially after talking about that type of thing for the last several months. It's like, all right, everybody gets this this money. But it's being treated like like a food stamp project, right, where now the government gets to dictate what you're allowed to spend your UBI on and what's disallowed. You can't buy any firearms or anything like that or any like unpasteurized milk or something like they get to dictate what it's spent on. And then, yeah, like, all right. Yeah, you're right. It's not fair to just give everyone the same amount of money. We have to we have to realize, you know, who, uh, according to their needs, needs more uh, what Equity. Would be an easy way to do that <laughs> yeah, right developing a social credit score system would be an easy way to do that so like while the, I, I could see people trying even on the the right side of the aisle trying to frame like some ubi as like some beneficial alternative to like the welfare system that we have in place my fear always goes in that cynical direction of like well what's the worst case scenario and when you mm. group in these digital dollar stuff and the social credit score or whatever the the downside of this, the worst case scenario of a UBI, seems to be much larger than what I would have said just a handful of months ago. Uh, Chris, I'll give you final word on this. Uh, we're already past an hour.
2: Yeah, I just think that it's uh, it's not a good idea to incentivize uh, population to be idle. Uh, the United States, you know, is a dynamic uh, economy that's you know grown substantially ever since it was created because people competed in uh, in the, in the uh, economic uh, workplace. And that has, you know, spurred innovation and, and all sorts of technological breakthroughs. And if you have just a large percentage of the population, you know, just getting a, you know, a stipend from the government, the uh, U.S. economy is going to be a shell of itself. And, you know, we take it for granted that, like, you know, the U.S. economy is just going to constantly progress, but that's not written in stone. And this sure. could uh, put a giant roadblock in that. Yep, yep, yep. All right.
0: Like I said, we're already over an hour. Uh, everyone that's listening to this conversation, I'm very curious of what you think about UBI. Does it, uh, do you think that it's going to play a role in uh, our, our national policy in the years to come? Uh, do you think it's a non-starter? What do you think? I'm very curious, and I do want to thank everyone for tuning in to this episode of In the Tank podcast. For those that are just listening to the audio-only version, you're probably listening to it on a Friday. You can join us a day earlier on Thursdays at noon, where we're streaming on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and Rumble. Uh, where you can join in the conversation. You can throw your comments and questions in the live chat. Maybe we'll show your comment on screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. Also, if you'd like, you can follow us on Twitter at InTheTankPod. If you have any comments, suggestions for the show, feel free to email us at InTheTankPodcast at gmail.com. And again, help us break through those big tech algorithms by just doing a couple of things, hitting that like button, hitting that share button, subscribing to the channel, leaving a comment under the video, all helps us out greatly. Justin Haskins, where can the fine people find you?
1: At Justin T. Haskins on Facebook, Twitter, Getter, Parler, and uh, all the other social media platforms out there in the universe.
0: Fantastic. Not
1: TikTok, though. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> you're not doing any dances on no TikTok. dances not TikTok. you're not being paid by the by the un to be the on only TikTok,
1: way but... The only way i'm gonna go on tiktok is if a the un pays me and b the <laughs> purpose of going on tiktok is to talk about how stupid it is for people to go on to tiktok so chris talgo
2: what do you have to pitch today stopping socialism.com and uh, heartland.org all right
0: fantastic thank you all for tuning into this episode we'll talk to you next week